from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 9, Mothra vs. Godzilla. G-Fans and Kaiju Lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherchel. And in this week's episode, we will be talking about Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964, or as it was called in the U.S. when it was released theatrically, Godzilla vs. The Thing, or when it was released on video here in the U.S., Godzilla vs. Mothra. It is ranked, along with the original Gojira, as one of the most seminal entries in the entire franchise. It also comes from a seminal year in kaiju film history, because this is the only year that two Godzilla films were released in the same year. I know, that's just all kinds of crazy, you know, the fact that they could turn these around that fast. Our related topics for this episode include Typhoon Vera, the 1964 Summer Olympics, the 2020 Summer Olympics, the Shinkansen Bullet Train, and the Tokyo Monorail. Yeah, talk about an eventful year. Sheesh. (laughs) Now, as usual, the part one of the podcast will be a short description of the film. Let's get started. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a force of nature. He is washed ashore by a typhoon and starts wandering through Japanese cities. He is more of an animal than an intelligent character. Mothra is the other kaiju, presented in larval and adult stages. Her egg is taken to Japan by a typhoon. Mothra primarily wants to protect her offspring, and then secondarily wants to protect Japan from Godzilla. Ichiro Sakai and Junko Nakanishi are a reporter and photographer, respectively, for a Japanese newspaper covering the appearance of Mothra's egg. Professor Shunsuke Miura is a scientist they contact with questions about the egg. They become stalwart advocates for returning the egg to Mothra after meeting the Shobajin. Kumiyama and Torahata are greedy and belligerent tycoons running happy enterprises. They plan to make huge profits by building a theme park around the egg, despite objections from the heroes. The human and kaiju plots are intertwined. Everything the humans do is directly connected to the egg or the kaiju. Since Godzilla is a threat to Japan, the protagonists go to Infant Island to petition Mothra to fight Godzilla. The Japanese self-defense force uses power lines and electrified metal nests to try to stop Godzilla's progress. Neither of those methods work. In the English-language version of this film, the United States Navy attacked Godzilla using frontier missiles. The adult Mothra fights Godzilla, but she exhausts herself and dies. The problem is finally solved by the Mothra larvae cocooning Godzilla, and he falls into the ocean. The story is simple, containing solid ideas and themes while not getting bogged down by too many things going on at once. Sekizawa was great at not getting too complex and at communicating big ideas clearly. This is a prestige picture with a higher budget, and there is clearly a great amount of care being taken to produce something that looks good. Tsuburaya used his usual variety of methods in creating the special effects for this film. Technological methods of filming are blended very well, including some impressive composite shots. The Godzilla suit used in this film is a fan favorite. Like the two previous films, this has a lighter tone. 
It has Sekizawa's usual brand of humor, mainly in the human plotline, while the kaiju plotline contains much of the gravitas. This is the first time that Mothra and the fantasy that comes with her were integrated into the Godzilla series. This film doesn't do a lot of new or experimental things, but it does do everything it does very well. This movie is reinforcing the style of early Sekizawa entries like Mothra and King Kong vs. Godzilla. To many, it's a benchmark of what makes a good Godzilla film. The studio was able to expand the universe of its kaiju world by making this film. There was some rounding out of the audience appeal in that Mothra was popular with women. The film was largely successful and well-received. It was re-released in 1980 and was successful that time too. Many in the Godzilla fandom consider this film to be among the best of the sequels in the series. King Kong was the highest ticket seller in the Showa series, but this one also performed well. This movie depicts the rising power of corporate wealth, which was becoming more of a concern even as Japan's economy continued to boom and create higher amounts of disposable income. There's a clash between civilization, represented by Japan, and nature, represented by Mothra, and the film questions which is better. The film satirizes corporatism and its often exploitative nature. Ishiro Honda added the Brotherhood of Man theme to Sekizawa's script because it was very important to him. Like in the previous film, we have the idea that the Japanese economic miracle's progress being destroyed in the blink of an eye. A potent anti-nuclear sentiment is expressed by the natives since their island was devastated by nuclear testing. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. For part two of the podcast, we will be doing an opinion and discussion of the film. This is an occasion where we both like the film a lot. So I think rather than criticize it for tiny little things in it Nitpicks. that we may have noticed. Yeah, I, I think rather than do that, then we're just not. <laughs> not <laughs> does that sound okay? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it would feel almost sacrilegious in a way to criticize this movie. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it's perfect, but does so many things well yeah and what there's like maybe a couple little negatives but i at this point i can't even remember what they really were and i i don't even want to bring everybody down at this point about this movie because it's, it's great i like it a lot it's fun it's it's really it's it's like i love how they take the fairies so seriously <laughs> and there's all this fantastical stuff and it's all within a serious context i think it's a nice dichotomy mm-hmm. and i yeah i don't i don't think we're going to complain no it's it's one that actually in you know in preparing for this podcast and rewatching it i i, I have a greater appreciation now for it i had i never quite realized how much depth there really is in this movie there's something to be said about what's in this one and i think it's because it's done pretty subtly and that's one of the strengths of Sekizawa you have to dig for it a little bit but you'll find it this is a great movie to introduce new viewers to Gojira and to the series it this along with other movies of the early 1960s are a great example of the machine running just at peak performance and the actors in it are great too Takarada's in it Koizumi's in it Mm -hmm. and Yuriko Hoshi is in it and the three of them do very well and the villains especially the the lesser businessman who Mm -hmm. ends up getting screwed over in the end he (laughs) he I love his character he he's that bombastic you know kind of actor and yet he doesn't seem evil when he's doing it 
as so much as as just being uh, the big guy who blows the, the cigar smoke into the oh, camera yeah. as she's taking the picture. <laughs> Despite the fact that he has a bit of a Hitler-esque mustache. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> I feel like this movie combined with the previous two movies that we did, King Kong versus Godzilla and the original Mothra, I almost feel like these three movies are kind of like some sort of disjointed trilogy. We, they all have the same writer. They all three have kaiju that behave more like animals rather than people. All three of them contain an element of fantasy to them. And to some degree, the, the characters are, well, not completely the same at all but that they're they're different but in the same vein it seems like yeah they're similar in a lot of ways the villains are probably the more interesting ones to compare and contrast yeah Torahata and kumayama yeah there's a there's definitely a theme that runs throughout these three movies where in the original mothra you had nelson who's this deliciously exaggeratedly evil sort of character but then you had then you had mr taco in the last movie who's a corporate type and a bit exploitive, but he's presented as a buffoon. He's comical. He's cartoonish. So the these two villains are like what would happen if you had taken both Nelson and Taco and you merged them together because they are also corporate types and they are also exaggeratedly evil. Although I would argue that they have more in common with Nelson than they do with Mr. Taco because I feel like Mr. Taco still has lines that he won't cross, where obviously Nelson had none. And all of these characters, in some way, they really relate back to Carl Denham from King Kong. It seems like they're all like almost like an echo, just various flavors of, of Carl Denham. Yeah, very much so, because they're, uh, they're looking for exotic things that they can profit from. You know, whether it's a monster or twin fairies or, uh, in this case, a monster's egg. And it seems like a lot of their plans have to do with things that are, well, kind of extra legal. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the business deal in this film is definitely suspicious between the two guys, of course. You know, you have uh, you have Torahata's really screwing him over. But then also you have uh, in, in the other two movies, you have that as well with Mr. Taco trying to get. King Kong as his mascot by illegally bringing him into the country. Definitely with Clark Nelson, you have him smuggling the fairies out of Japan. You could even make the argument that what he's doing is human trafficking, really. In disguise, yeah, he's in disguise and he pretty much is human trafficking. So all of all of these business plans that these guys put together, they're all they all are extra legal in one way or another. In one of the issues of G-Fan magazine, Ishiro Honda says that the Godzilla movies should be enjoyable. That's definitely what this movie does. Most definitely. It does it really well. One of my favorite parts in this movie, for sure, is when the monster and human plotlines collide, when Gojira destroys the hotel where the two businessmen are having their fight. Torahada is beaten up, and then he looks out the window Boom. Godzilla's right there coming towards him. I laughed when that happened. It's very enjoyable. It's it's poetic. Yes. You get to have these two things collide. And at the point where you get tired of these businessmen and you totally want to see something bad happen to them, mm-hmm. this is the perfect time for it. And I, I laughed. It was great fun. 
Torhada probably had a very privileged life, but then the last 15 minutes of his life was really not fun at all. It was <laughs> no. a really bad way to go. He gets beaten up, and then the guy mur- tries to steal his money. He murders him. And <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, he murders the other guy. And so then, finally, Godzilla ends up destroying the hotel, and he's killed that way, and with trying to get the money out in this big trench coat <laughs> yeah. full of full of money that he's you know carrying everything in. But I, I thought that was a neat story function to have going on where where you have these, these two plot lines just violently collide like this. You get to please the audience by having the villains taken out this way. It's also kind of ironic in that at this point Godzilla is not the hero in these movies and but here he is showing up taking out well really only one of the villains because because Torhada murders Yumahama so it, it is very ironic like you were saying I like the part where our two businessmen are on the phone and Torahata is relaxing with this woman and drinking as he's having the conversation <laughs> what if one of your buddies Call, uh, say about that part when you were screening it for him he was like oh it's booze and hookers time i guess <laughs> but like he's he's drinking and then he offers the drink to her and the first time she she pushes the glass back to him and smiles like oh you you know but, <laughs> and she's not really interested and then like we go back to the other guy and then we come back to Torahata. then he offers her the drink again and she gives this look, sort of like, oh, what the hell, why not? Sure. <laughs> and then she takes a sip of it, and then she doesn't do like a big cringe face or anything, but she does this sort of like thing where she's like, like oh, well, that stuff's strong. Yeah, she's like, ooh, that's got a kick to it. I think that little little touches like this in the movies are, are really good. And this is just a, a subtle thing going on. It's not slapsticky or supposed to be no. a laugh track in the background of the thing, but I, I think, I think she plays it really well and her expressions are really good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a, a funny moment that mm-hmm. takes place. And it's little touches like this, that mm-hmm. that's how you sort of lift up the movie a little bit mm-hmm. and, and make it a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, uh, it contributes to uh, some levity. It's a little bit of comic relief. And it also contributes to the satire, the mild satire that's going on in the film when it comes to corporate greed. I don't know what the drink is that he has. It doesn't look completely clear like sake does. And it's not whiskey because that's a lot darker. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Maybe it wasn't actually alcohol because they obviously don't want to use that when they're filming because they may have to do yeah. multiple takes. But yeah, I don't know. If you have any idea what alcohol this is, uh, you can email us at uh, <laughs> feedback at kaijuvision.com. <laughs> the next thing I thought was the opposite of these people and the report are the reporters and the scientists, the, the opposite of the villains, and also the fairies that approached to get some help. These are the people who show us what the right thing is, just like in the first Mothra movie. This goes to the more the way that these movies are set up where, especially in the Showa series where the scientists are definitely not evil and they have, they're the ones that are trusted to have the bigger picture in their heads and they know what the right thing to do is. This is also a period of time where the reporters are the ones who know what the right thing is. They investigate it. They see things from an objective enough way that they know who the winner should be and who the loser should be. And they know that Mothra has the right ideas in mind and 
is emphasizing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so they choose the, the side of nature over the side of civilized society, quote unquote civilized. It ends up that Mothra is in fact probably more civilized than the technological <laughs> society that Japan has become at this point. Mm-hmm. When our protagonists visit Infant Island, they're, they're given these little bowls with this red liquid in them and and it's like it's almost like they lined up for some kind of scene to happen but then it's like something was cut but like <laughs> when i see that happen it, like 9 times out of 10 maybe even 99 out of 100 times you see that happen in an american film or in a especially in a comedic american film i thought oh okay here comes the hallucination uh, you know tripping scene yeah, where, where we get to see all these animations or pink elephants, or colors, pink elephants, yeah, all these splashing colors across. Or, or I thought, okay, what's going to happen? And then nothing happens. And I was like, oh, okay, you just didn't move on from that. But expectations subverted. I think it would have been funny if they they did do that. I don't. It would have been really out of character for the movie to do that. But at the same time, I almost wouldn't have been surprised if they just did it. If they did like it right, way. I think. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But I mean, having seen so many movies where you, you go to the tribe and then the natives give you something to drink, you know, so there's always that connection in my head where it's like, oh, okay, then we're going to have a funny, um, weird uh, Terry Gilliam style <laughs> scene <laughs> with hallucinations and stuff. But it, in fact, that didn't happen. But now, I thought that there's was... a really weird idea. Terry Gilliam directing Godzilla versus Mothra. Oh, oh you, boy. You, you know, he saw some of these Godzilla movies, though. He had to have. <laughs> if you've seen enough Terry Gilliam movies and know how he thinks, he totally has probably seen a number of these movies. Yeah. If not well, a lot of them. Well, what was the what was the purpose in, in them drinking that liquid anyway? I think they said it was supposed to ward off evil spirits. Or something like that. My thought Either was that, or to protect radi- against radiation. That was or my thought. Is that they said it was to fend off evil spirits. I interpreted I it. Was it. I th- I, yeah, I interpreted it as you know that's their spiritualization of this is the stuff that we use to you know keep uh, keep the radiation from killing us or something like that. It's important to note that this is the last movie featuring a mean, destructive Godzilla for quite a while. It is a great movie to celebrate the tenth anniversary of the original film. And it's a good movie to top off the first 10 years with. After this, we'll see a much different Gojira for a good number of movies. Like I've said before, you can't just have this kind of Gojira the whole time and not evolve things. Otherwise, the series just would have died. A scene that I'm particularly fond of is there's a lot of discussion in critical literature relating to these films that doesn't present the female characters and most Godzilla movies as being much of anything, usually saying that they're weak or they're just MacGuffins or anything like that. But what I find interesting in this one is that you have Junko, the photographer working with the reporters who goes with them to Infant Island in order to appeal to Mothra to help them. And They are continually refused by the islanders and the twin priestesses. And then the first person to speak up and make that the first impassioned plea in order to change things is Junko. And she's very emotional about it. And she is really making that first appeal about the brotherhood of man, saying that you you have to help us. You can't just let all of the good people suffer with the bad. And... When she, after she does that, it's the other male characters then join in and then add to what she has said, and then 
that begins a series of events where the priestesses are convinced, and then they go and they talk to Mothra, and then Mothra says that she will intervene on their behalf. And I think that says something about what she did. Her as a character, I do think she's a strong character, and she makes a sizable contribution to the plot, because if she... I would argue if she hadn't made that plea, the rest of the movie may have not even happened. However, she would be the character that would be doing that, wouldn't she? Like, you wouldn't have a man making that kind of emotional plea like that. Probably not. Yeah, that, that would be out of character, I think, for the the male in Japanese movie like this to be making that point. So they the men get to be the ones to chime in mm-hmm. while she gets to be the emotional, you know, woman. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, I think it's characteristic that she, it would be her that, that would make that kind of statement. Uh, one of the other things that is a big improvement in this over Mothra is the, the twin priestesses are actually full fledged characters as opposed to being more or less MacGuffins, which is what they were in, in Mothra and they're allowed to – you really see their personalities come through in this. They're much more involved in the story as opposed to being the thing that everyone is after. You know, In this case, the exploitation is not the fairies as, as it is the Mothra's egg. This is the second time in two movies now that we've had a falling into the ocean moment at the end. And it is done at, at, least, at least one more time. So we're trying to figure out why – this is done. And the thing that came to me was that this was a way to end the story quickly. And then you said that it was more of a way to end it ambiguously. Yeah. Ambiguously. You can keep the fates of the monsters fairly ambiguous. So that way you don't know what happened to them. So if they were to make subsequent movies, they would be able to say, okay, well this monster's still alive and things like that. Yeah. There's a way not to kill the monsters too. Yeah. Yeah. For the English version, with the one that has English dubbing in it, the dubbing is quite good. It's some of the best dubbing in the series. I, later on, we're going to have some problems with it. But right now, the, 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 the dubbing's really good for what it is. And we discussed dubbing quite before. As, as we know, I, I don't particularly enjoy the dubbing. I'd rather that everybody tries to get a hold of the Japanese version if they can, just because I just love hearing the Japanese language, let alone just we should be hearing what the actors on the screen are saying. But the English dubbing is really good in this. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to note in this movie that the Japanese aren't really given a pass on having been hit by atomic bombs themselves in that the people at, in, on Infant Island, they lump in Japan along with everyone else. That is true. And so regardless of Japan being a victim of these atomic bombings, there's still... Japan's considered part of the whole world community that the islanders feel um, grievous towards. And so I think it's interesting that there's it's all of mankind and it's a very universal message of of peace. And and the pacifist themes in these early movies are pretty strong. Have you read very many of the reviews of this film on uh, that movie database? Only a few. I noticed that some of the reviews talked about Drunkzilla and about Godzilla being clumsy and all that. And it, when I rewatched it, I noticed what they were talking about, like with his tail getting caught in the tower yeah. and when he his left 
foot gets yeah, when he when he stumbles the, yeah, yeah while walking in around the, in the moat around yeah, the, the castle moat. Mm-hmm. yeah Nagoya castle yeah and i obviously it's not an accident that you know they clearly filmed that mm-hmm. and so I wondered, okay, obviously this is in there for a reason. It's not for comic relief, because that would be rather odd. And so the only conclusion is what? Is that he's just naturally moving around, and all of these obstacles are in his way. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's all that was really being done. I think it was an attempt to be a little bit realistic about how kaiju go through cities. Mm-hmm. He's in a, an environment that he is not used to. Right, yeah. It's, it's just obstacle course for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all that it was really trying to, the movie was really trying to say about that. But I don't think it's, I, I don't think he was being clumsy. I don't I don't think that there was uh, something that just happened and they've, so they've just filmed it. That, that didn't happen either. But I think that's all that's, that's going on with that is it's not his native environment, mm-hmm. I think. In the commentary for this movie, there is a little bit of question brought in about what the religious symbolism in this movie is going on. Because we have, we had some religious symbolism in Mothra with the, with the cross and, and some other things. I wasn't really sure what to make of that one. But although the symbolism did it looked kind of nice, it, I guess it gelled yeah. together. But th- with this one, we have Mothra directly sacrificing herself for the larvae. And I guess since they know what the right thing to do is to let Mothra be Mothra and return the egg instead, I'm, I'm wondering what the religious symbolism, if any of there is in, in that sacrifice is, is it like just a nature thing or is it just religion or I'm, I'm not 100% sure myself. I hadn't thought about that. The, the religious overtones are certainly stronger in the 1961 Mothra. I, I don't know, but there is something to be said about Mothra's sacrifice in this. I mean, it's clearly stated a couple of times. This is going to be the last great act that Mothra will be able to do. She will not have the strength to return to Infant Island. That's one of the strengths of the movie. That's one of the strengths of Sekizawa is that he writes in such a way that there's probably multiple ways that you could interpret that. You know, uh, Mothra, like I said, has always been much more spiritual in nature compared to most other kaiju. And Sekizawa wasn't really into explaining every tiny little thing and having too many things going on in the story at once. All right, Brian, I I think with that, uh, we've concluded our discussion of the film. We can move on to our related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Because beginning of the movie is really tumultuous and features a typhoon, I believe that we've figured out what that is. And that is Typhoon Vera. Which hit Japan not once, but twice in 1959, September 1959. It is the most devastating typhoon to hit Japan. In all of its history, which is quite a feat. It was as powerful as a Category 5 hurricane. The media and disaster preparedness was not as urgent as it should have been, and so evacuations weren't adequate. The storm caused nearly $5 billion in damage in 2016 dollars, and it inhibited the growth of the Japanese economy, even though it was still growing at gangbuster speed. It destroyed fishing vessels, damaged seawalls, damaged agricultural land, 
flooded rivers and shores, and the storm surge destroyed homes and businesses. And killed 4,000 people. And left 1.6 million homeless. The National Diet passed a new disaster preparedness system in 1961, which would help evacuations for the future. This was actually one of the first times I, I, I would argue that you actually got to see the Japanese-U.S. alliance actually in effect because Lieutenant General Robert Whitney Burns ordered all U.S. servicemen who were stationed in Japan to help with Typhoon Vera relief. This typhoon could have been the one featured in the opening credits, and it makes sense because this is only five years after, and they were probably still recovering from it. And the beginning of the movie, they have those huge water pumps that are throwing all of the water back into the ocean. And then we have so much damage that Godzilla even ended up getting caught up in it along with the egg. And buried. And buried. Under the, under the... Yeah, buried under all the sand. All the mud and sand, yeah. And so even though we don't know for sure, I, I'm pretty sure that, that this is uh, hearkening back to that particular typhoon mm -hmm. I because would, they got, it was such a national event. It yeah. Was, I think it was probably along the lines that maybe Katrina would have been for the United yeah. States. I mean, it's certainly, and that didn't kill 44,000 people either. No, uh, it, the, I think the typhoon at the beginning of the movie, was certainly inspired by Vera. I don't know if it's actually supposed to be Vera, but the, the parallels are, uh, you know, too obvious to ignore, I would say. Yeah, it suggests that the typhoon was a very severe one. I think it just makes sense. Along with that, there's the fact that it's really cool that there's a disaster that's very at the beginning of the film. We've already discussed how Godzilla and other kaiju have often the same effect that a lot of disasters have. And so we literally have a disaster bringing Godzilla to Japan again. Typhoon Vera did do some economic damage to Japan, to be sure, but it was going gangbusters at the time. Uh, it was GDP grew at 11.6 percent just in 1964, which is crazy high. Amazing. Another important thing to come out of Typhoon Vera was it prompted the passage of the Disaster Countermeasures Basic Act in 1961. The act established the Central Disaster Prevention Council, which coordinates disaster risk reduction. The legislation also mandated an annual disaster prevention plan to be submitted to the Japanese parliament. And it established September 1st as a National Disaster Prevention Day in Japan, which, given how disaster-prone Japan is, the creation of this, uh, of this legislative body and uh, a National Disaster Prevention Day makes total sense. If anybody needs a disaster prevention day, that would be Japan. But probably easily the biggest event to hit Japan in 1964 was Japan had the privilege of hosting the Olympics in Tokyo. And this was the first of four times that they will Japan will get to host the Olympics. During the selection process, Japan was up against Detroit, Vienna, and Brussels for the hosting of this Olympics in 64. And this became the first Olympics in Asia. And so it was a momentous event for Japan and for Asia at the same time. Japan got to end the post-surrender era, and they rejoined the world community. And 1964 is really a big banner year for that reason. It was able to disperse the malaise from the Japanese national spirit. 
and it was the first Olympics to be broadcast internationally. So this was a tremendous opportunity for Japan to really showcase their country and showcase their culture and in a way, really let the rest of the world know that they had changed significantly as a country in the two decades since World War II. They worked the symbolism into this uh, by having the torchbearer be Yoshinori Sakai, and he was a 400-meter runner, and he was born 42 miles from Hiroshima on the day of the actual bombing. And so that was Japan's way to say this is Japan's future and not Japan's past. Yeah, there were 60,000 foreign visitors in Japan for these Olympic Games. And they had to learn things like, may I help you, and some of the English phrases. Regarding Japan's performance at the Games, this was the first time that the sport of judo was held at the Games, and as you might expect, since judo is a Japanese martial art, Japan took gold. Also, the Japanese women's volleyball team made it to the finals and played against none other than the USSR. And Japan took gold, and it was a momentous occasion. The challenges of, the, of hosting the games included not having enough public space, there was overcrowding, there weren't as many facilities, uh, sports venues, roads, etc. Overall, the 64 Olympics went very well. It was a great way for them to show how far they had come. Mm-hmm. Our next topic is the preview sort of for the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo again. This time around, they were up against Istanbul and Madrid. And so now they are one city in the world to have hosted two summer games uh, so far during the Olympics, which started in 1896. The sports that will be included in 2020, but not necessarily in 2024, were chosen by, I believe, Japan's uh, Olympic Committee themselves. And those sports include baseball, softball, which to me is a big deal, baseball, surfing, skateboarding, karate, and sport climbing. I'm going to take a wild guess and say Japan's going to dominate at karate. Yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> the games will be held uh, from July 22nd to August 9th. Interestingly, the 1964 games were held from October 10th to October 24th. And the rationale for that later date in 1964 was to avoid the summer heat and avoid the typhoon season, which was occurring during that time. So I'm not really sure. I, I guess the concerns about those issues may not have prevailed this time around. That is and, interesting. Yeah, I don't know exactly how they're going to yeah. deal with that, because I guess this is the period of time they generally wanted to avoid in 1964. So yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to go. Yeah, they're throwing a lot of money at this, too. It's uh, 400 billion yen, which accounts to about $3 billion in, you know, in the United States. That is crazy. <laughs> yeah, the public, parts of the public have been a little bit upset about just the sheer cost and, uh, of, the, of the venues that are being built, and they actually scaled back, I believe, or replanned one of the venues just because that it, the thing was going to cost so much. Other difficulties so far include uh, there was a bribery scandal involving the IAF, and that's currently under investigation. And that was regarding uh, whether Japan, Tokyo, would be chosen for the Olympics. And the other problem was the logo plagiarism issue, which occurred. Um, they chose an artist that apparently ended up having a history of plagiarism and a theater in Brussels, of all places, uh, came and said, look, this is our logo. And 
it's pretty much the exact same thing. And there are articles about this to, to see about it. And so they got a different artist and they were able to get a new logo and it looks really nice. And so they were able to solve that problem. Another thing that was included in the 1964 Olympics, and this is our next topic, was the Tokaido Shinkansen. And that is the high-speed bullet train that connected Tokyo and Osaka. Initially, construction was planned to begin in 1940, but the war obviously pushed that out. Uh, The construction then began in 1959 and finished on October 1st, 1964, which was just in time for the start of the 64 Olympics. Speeds at that time were 130 miles an hour, and currently now they're about 177. Interestingly, the bullet trains have had a 50-year history, and they've transported over 10 billion passengers, but they have a really impressive safety record. They've never had any passenger fatalities due to derailments. Just this line of the Shinkansen has so far carried 5.3 billion passengers. The Shinkansen bullet train that is the original is called the Tokaido Shinkansen. That was the one that opened in 1964. Yep. It connects Tokyo to Osaka. There are seven Shinkansen lines currently in Japan connecting the three biggest islands. The newest line connects Honshu to Hokkaido, and that was opened just last year in 2016. And what this did was, it was this is definitely the, the highest travel bullet train line uh, in the world, for especially as far as cumulative passengers, though, there are some high-speed lines in China that are carrying more by volume on a daily basis, I believe, than this now. But what this has done, though, is that it's it's shown Japan's modernity. Unlike the United States, they get to have a country that is uh, nice and compact, at least. So, you know, obviously we have more land, and I think we'd rather have the more land part of it. But uh, building bullet trains in the United States has been a, a lot harder. When you have Japan as such a small country and so compact, bullet trains make a whole lot of sense. The population density is high, and so they're very highly used. It's really, I think, especially in 1964 at the time, the bullet train was a very good symbol of a modern, advanced Japan. Bullet trains came to the masses. The other big event to happen in 1964 was the opening of the Tokyo monorail, which happened just, I think, about a week before the Olympics started. Its first day of operations was uh, September 24th, 1964, just in time for the Olympics to start. So just like the bullet train, the monorail came in at the same time. It has over 311,000 riders per day. And the line follows the shore of Tokyo Bay. It's an elevated track on that part. It connects Minato, Tokyo to Haneda Airport, which Haneda Airport is where most of the domestic flights currently are in Japan. Meanwhile, Narita or New Tokyo Airport is where the majority of international flights take place. The express train on the monorail has only the Minato and three Haneda Airport stops, and it takes only 13 minutes to make that journey, which is pretty fast. There are 11 stations total on the line. There is an upgrade in the works that was announced in 2009 and was supposed to take 10 years, which, if kept on schedule, will be completed in time for the 2020 Olympics. The upgrade is meant basically to increase capacity and to extend the track to Shimbashi Station. Okay, so we have the Shinkansen and we have the Tokyo Monorail. The way that these two things tie up together 
is that they were both examples of Japanese technological nationalism. And now it's, it's a way of deriving national pride from showcasing technological innovations that are of, uh, you know, they were either started or invented or had their biggest part in the world in that particular country. Another example of technological nationalism would definitely be the Seattle monorail, which is pretty close to this. And it was built in 19 or for the 1962 World's Fair, the Century 21. So that's another example of uh, technological nationalism. Another huge one for the United States would be the would be NASA and a lot of the innovations and programs that they have done. I mean, there's almost too many to list. I mean, you have the Mercury program, which was the first manned American flight in space, the lunar landing, obviously. And then you had the the Voyager satellite program, the first two Voyager satellites of which actually left the solar system. And then obviously the iconic space shuttle program. And also the Gemini program. And then like there's the whole connection to the space race of the of the national competition, really, between... The Soviet Union and the U.S. as to the you know the, who was going to get to the moon first and, and all these other big milestones that they that they reached in uh, in trying to outdo each other technologically. Yeah, and, that and so that t- yeah, and so that ties into really the, a lot of uh, a huge part of the motivation for why NASA was making all those advancements was so that they could beat the Soviets. It was a matter of national pride because the Russians had were the first ones to launch a satellite with Sputnik and they had they launched the first man into space. So it became this thing that, you know, if we're going to outdo the Russians, we better do something huge and that's what the lunar landing was. Yeah, and so we we have seen technological nationalism in other countries too, such such as Germany and uh, also in the UK over time, uh, especially earlier on before World War II. And so that's how these that's how these issues uh, and these things that we've showcased they all kind of connect into the Japanese finding a great sense of pride from being big technological innovators. Well, Brian, I think that wraps up this week's episode for us. Our next film and our next episode will be 1964's Ghidra, the Three-Headed Monster, and you'll see a lot of familiar faces in this one. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara, 